Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning for our teaching. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to come together. Lord, as we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to receive what you have to share with us this morning. Lord, as I've said for the, the last couple of weeks and um, in previous times reading through this text, Lord, I know there's so much in here that you've shared with me, Lord, that means so much to me. And Lord, this morning, I just pray that you would divide that out of what was for me, what was for the people here who are listening, Lord, and that they would hear your words through the teaching that I, that, that I present, Lord, but that they would be your words, Lord, your power to speak through these words. Lord, draw each one of us closer to you. Reveal more of yourself to us as we look at this message, Lord. And I just pray that we would be more like Christ after hearing this message, Lord, and after processing in our hearts and minds. Lord, we dedicate this time to you, Lord. Pray that you would fill this place with your spirit, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 1 Corinthians 4, there's, of course, three chapters before that. If you weren't here when I taught those, you can go back there online. You can look those up. A few things I want to point out from the first three chapters that are important leading into 1 Corinthians 4. For one thing, the culture in Corinth is important to understand. Uh, it helps you to understand why Paul was explaining some of the, explains, some of the things he's explaining to the Corinthians. Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world. Now, I say great, but there's bad things that come with a, being a great city in this world. It was a busy town. It was growing. Um, unfortunately, it had a deserved reputation for the reckless pursuit of pleasure. You can name some cities today just like that. It had a rich ethnic mix, which is great. However, that brings a lot of different religions together into one place that the Corinthians are going to have to deal with is this newfound faith in Christ that they've been exposed to and that they've accepted. It was also a center for sports, government, military, and business. The Corinthian people were known throughout the world for their partying, their drunkenness, and loose sexual morals. As Christians, it's not the kind of thing we want to be known for. So it's something they were having to leave behind, and they were having some challenges in doing that. As a result, the church in Corinth had some issues that Paul addressed. Some of the things he addresses in this letter to the Corinthians include morality problems, doctrine problems, church government problems, spiritual gift problems, church service problems, and authority problems, which is mostly what 1 Corinthians 4 covers. I don't think any of those are unique to the church today. There's still a lot of issues that we need to be taught, that we need to learn from God's Word, and probably have room to improve in. Paul also had to discuss church division within the church of Corinth. Paul talked in chapter 2 about the fundamentals of the gospel of the Christian. And he talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and its role within the life of a Christian. Then in chapter 3, Paul talked about the lack of spiritual growth in the Corinthian church. It's always a problem when you're not growing spiritually as a church as a whole, but also as an individual. We're looking for growth there. Paul, this is where most people know the, the first verse where he talked about the people being carnal as babes in Christ. He said, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you're not able to receive it. It's not a thing that's warm and fuzzy if we hear that. I'm sure it wasn't for the Corinthians, but he needed to make them understand they weren't ready for the more mature teachings that God wanted him to reveal. Then Paul had to address the division, the cliques within the Corinthian church, and he addressed that in chapter 3. He's going to build on that here in chapter 4. And this is where the Corinthians were dividing themselves. They'd say, I'm of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or Whatever teacher had shared the gospel with them, whoever they got saved under, they were dividing themselves under cliques. 
under each one of these individual apostles or teachers. And it's not a bad thing that they recognized who led them to the Lord. That, that's a great thing in each one of our hearts. We may know who that person is. They may be a, a valuable or a very important person in our lives, and they should be. But that doesn't mean they become the center of our worship. That's not where we divide ourselves as Christians. And the issue there became pride. The pride in associating with a man, not in Christ, who was the Savior. This is where Paul talked about the analogies of planting a field, and he talked about the analogy of building a building. It helped the Corinthians understand that all the work of the gospel is carried out by craftsmen. Whether they're building a building or planting a field, these are, are gifted craftsmen that God has sent to do this work. But the fact is they're doing God's work, not their own. And therefore the people belong to God. So having kind of backed up a little bit and, and brought you back up to speed on that, and again you can go listen to those full teachings online. We pick up in 1 Corinthians 4. Let me read the first five verses and then we'll back up and start breaking it down. 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. So Paul uses some words or terms here that we need to make sure we understand before we go any further. So starting in verse 1, if you're reading the King James Version, it's the word ministers, or as I read from the New King James Version, we saw the word servants. Well, that we had the word uh, minister in chapter 3, but it was a different word. Uh, here in chapter 4, it comes from the Greek word huperites. And the word here means specifically an under rower or a subordinate rower, such as those on a large ship. So we've all seen the movies. We don't have these too often today. We've all seen the, the movies where in the, the belly of the ship down the bottom, there's the oars sticking out and there's these lines of men. Some of them look almost like this church rows, guys with an oar. And you have a person going row, row, row. And all they're doing is listening and just going in time with that so that they're all working together. Keeps them all working in unison. I won't go into detail, but picture that as a church. You've got a person leading. You've got everybody just in line, just doing their part in unison. That's the unity God wants to see. These folks aren't steering the ship. They're not deciding where it goes. They're just taking that direction. They're doing their part. It may seem insignificant, but what if they all said, no, nah, we're not rowing. Not going far, are they? Not, ship's not going to do much. The word minister from chapter 3 was actually from the word diakonos. We talked about a deacon there. That's one who executes the commands of another um, and it is an office. It has the idea of an associate, uh, position assigned to them. So it was a different word. The next word I want to look at here in, in verse uh, 1 is the word steward, which comes from the Greek word oikonomos. Now this describes, I'm just going to read you the definition. It's a steward, a manager, a superintendent, whether freeborn or it was typically the case of a freedman or a slave, to whom the head of the house or proprietor has entrusted the management of his affairs, the care of receipts and expenditures, and the duty of dealing out the proper portion to every servant and even to the children not yet of age. So we're going to talk a lot about stewardship here in the first part of this chapter. There's your definition. Then the, the last term is the phrase mysteries of God. 
the mysteries of God. I don't want anybody wondering what that means. So what is Paul talking about when he says the mysteries of God? Well, it comes from the word mysterion, the Greek word mysterion. And it simply means the counsels which govern God in dealing with the righteous, which are hidden from the ungodly and wicked men, but plain to the godly. So these are just simply the things that God reveals to us. The ungodly, the person who hasn't accepted Christ, is not going to understand these. That's why they, we read in previous chapters that it looks like foolishness to the world. You know, the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. Why? You can only understand the message of the cross with a relationship with God. So when we talk about the mysteries of God, it's simply the teachings of the Lord, Him revealing Himself to us through His Word. Paul writes that the Corinthians should consider him as a steward of the mysteries of God. There were some issues here I've kind of already touched on where the church started dividing itself based on who had led them to the Lord. When we start dividing ourselves, what happens? We start looking at people and going, well, my person led me to the Lord's better than yours because we have an allegiance to that person. We start developing that allegiance and it can grow over time. And you can see where that starts going in the wrong direction, right? I mean, we don't, we don't, as Christians, put our faith in a man. We know that. We would say that. But yet we'll divide ourselves into cliques if we're not careful. As to this is who my Bible teacher is or that's who my Bible teacher is. And we start rejecting others as a result of that. You know, my Bible teacher said this. Well, yours said something different. You know, maybe the application was to mature versus immature. We're not going to all say the same thing every time. If we did, we'd only have one set of teachings for the entire Bible. We wouldn't need to explain it multiple Sundays in multiple places around the world. And this is what was happening in the church there at Corinth. They were starting to divide themselves. Almost playing favorites, you could say. This is the one I prefer, this is the one you prefer, and they start putting each other down. So that's what Paul's having to deal with here. And he, he refers to himself, again, a steward of the mysteries of God. To the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 19, Paul wrote, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Paul's going to bring them back here to the foundation being Christ. The Christ is the center of the church. That's what all of us have in common here today. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, He is the common thing. Our lives go in different directions when we go out this door, but we come together as Christians with one common denominator, and that's Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul says we are being built together. The work's not finished, is it? We're still being built together. It's a process as we go from a self-serving life as an unbeliever. We accept the Lord. And then we begin a life dedicated to serving God, our Father and Creator. We have to grow in that process. That's a work that God does. Those mysteries of God, as an unbeliever, you, you didn't understand them. You couldn't, you couldn't understand them. You didn't have the Holy Spirit to teach you those things. But as a believer, once you dedicate your life to the Lord, you can now begin to understand these. They begin to be revealed to you as you study the Word of God, as you fellowship, as you worship even. Paul explained to the Ephesians in uh, chapter 5, verse 8, For you were formerly in darkness, but now you are light of the world. Walk as children of light. So he's saying that now that you've accepted the Lord, you are in, in, you are in light. You're no longer in the darkness when you serve the, the enemy. But our walk should be the same. Not just in word, but our deed. Our walk should demonstrate 
that we belong to the God of life instead of the, the Lord of darkness. Where the unbeliever walks in darkness with a limited understanding, the believer now is able to walk in the light with full access to the knowledge of heaven and of earth. Unfortunately, many Christians, they want the rewards that come with being part of the family of God, but they don't want to reflect that in their lives. They want to continue clinging to the worldly things. That's much of where the Corinthians have found themselves. Think about this church in Corinth. This is one of probably the most vile places on earth at the time. I'll let you pick your place to make an analogy to it today. There's plenty of places out there that just take pride and actually boast in the sinful things that they do. They consider that a badge of honor. Well, that would have been Corinth. Name your sin. They reveled in it. They enjoyed it. It was a great thing to them. Look at me. Look how I do this. And we would look at that as Christians and say, man, that's, that's not godly at all. Well, when they weren't Christians, before they were Christians, you couldn't expect any more of them, right? They didn't know any better. They didn't have that knowledge. But once they accepted the Lord as their Savior, they have this battle now. There's this, I, I've dedicated my life to the Lord, but every, all my friends, everybody around me, this entire large city is still doing the same things. The city didn't get saved. The individual did. So they have to learn how to walk in the light, not the darkness. They have to allow their walk to demonstrate their new faith in their Lord and reflect Him instead of the darkness that they've served previously. But it's a decision we have to make. That, that too, that decision to, to let our actions um, demonstrate our faith, we have to be conscious of. So Paul here is encouraging them to view Him as a steward. In essence, Paul is saying, I have much to share with you that you do not know. There's so much available to you that right now you're still unaware of. You haven't learned all of this. And it's my responsibility to teach you those things. See, God has placed Paul in this role as a steward, as an apostle. Remember that definition we talked about of a steward. It's a manager or superintendent to whom the house or proprietor has entrusted the management of his affairs. God has put this endorsement in Paul. He's put him in that position, that responsibility to go and teach these mysteries of God to reveal things. To reveal God's way of governing. Paul has not only the privilege, but the responsibility. And Paul feels a burden for this. If you notice throughout his teachings, Paul has a burden, not only for the Corinthians, but also for the Ephesians and all the others. Through his letters, we read that. All the time he spent traveling from place to place, going back and visiting these churches, he has a burden for these people that God has put in him and his desires to fulfill that role. And for that reason, in verse 3, Paul says, But with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. See, there's three types of judgment that we deal with as humans. First is the judgment of man. Paul says he doesn't place a lot of weight on that. That phrase human court um, in the New King James Version or man's judgment there in the King James Version actually translated in the Greek means man's day. Paul says, I'm not interested in a judgment from the day of man. Should we be? Should we be worried about the judgment in the day of man here on earth? Or God's time, the day of the Lord, it's coming. We as humans have limits in how we can judge the actions of others. What are their motivations? We don't know. We can't read that. We don't know for sure what their motivation is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, later to the Corinthians, Paul's going to write, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. 
So is a, a steward of God the, the least valuable judgment available to us? Is that of another man? Just the, the understanding is limited, and that's not our master. That's who we are serving. The second judgment is from self. Paul in the scriptures there that we just read said, In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. Paul doesn't even consider himself qualified to judge his own actions or his own works. It's not that he hasn't tried. Paul has made an effort to look at himself and determine, is there anything there lacking? And we each have, are called to do that, the scriptures. Two examples I'll give, Lamentations 3, 40. It says, let us search and try our ways and turn back to the Lord. So we're, we're instructed by the scriptures, search ourselves, look at our own ways. And if we find anywhere that we're not serving the Lord directly or that we're a little bit off course, to correct that course, turn back to the Lord in the way we serve him. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and 29, Paul's going to write, therefore, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So even when the Lord gave us communion at that time, he said, do this, why? In remembrance of me. He wanted us to reflect back on what he had done for us. This is a time to reflect on our relationship with the Lord. How well am I doing in representing him to the world? Again, take a look at our own lives and make any corrections we see. Okay, well, if the word says do that, then I should be able to judge myself, right? Well, we would think so. But even our own heart can deceive us, right? Are, are we always honest with ourselves? No, not always. Sometimes we... we Try to take a look at what we're doing and we justify our own flaws in ways. Not anybody else's. We can, look, we can tell everybody else's flaws, right? It's just our own. We're going to look over, whitewash, kind of let them go. But everybody else's we can, we can see, but not our own. And we all know we've been guilty of that at times. So Paul says, I don't know of anything against myself. I've looked at my own life. I'm doing everything I can to serve the Lord in my best estimation. But he says, I'm not justified by this. We can't justify our own works, can we? We can't justify ourselves through our own actions. So the third judgment that we as humans consider is the judgment from God. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God alone is able to truly search our hearts and know our true motives. We can deceive ourselves. We can't deceive God. God knows. Sometimes we can deny it. We're not going to win that battle, are we? We can reject what God tries to tell us. We just get tired and weary every time doing that. Wearsby comments, there can be a fine line between a clear conscience and a self-righteous attitude, we must be aware. We may feel that we have a clear conscience, but some of that may be just self-righteousness playing out. We need God to correct that for us. Not one another, God. The steward of God is accountable to his master. As a steward, Paul's not accountable to others. He's not even accountable to himself. He's accountable to the head of the household. That's God himself. Clark comments, the steward was the master's deputy in regulating the concerns of the family, providing food for the household, 
seeing it served out at proper times and seasons and in proper quantities. He received all the cash, expended what was necessary for the support of the family, and kept exact accounts for which he was obliged at certain times to lay before the master. If you have a job where you have responsibility from time to time, there's an evaluation, isn't there? Sometimes quarterly, annual, semi-annual, whatever the case may be. And what happens? They sit down and they say, here were your goals. How did you do? Are you meeting the goals that have been laid out for you? Sometimes yearly evaluations, you know, at the beginning of the year you set goals and this is what you're expected to accomplish throughout the year. And at the end of the year, the beginning of the next year, you sit down and, okay, these are my goals, how did I do? Been in those where you have to evaluate yourself. Then you have to sit down with your manager and they do an evaluation. They don't always line up too well. But with God, that day will come where we'll have to give account of those things that he's called us to do. In verse 5, Paul says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. See, even if you do please man and you get praise from man, what are you going to do with it? Make you feel warm and fuzzy until you run into the next person that's unhappy with you? Then all that goes away? That's the best you can hope for with man, isn't it? And maybe you get praise from two or three people. But, but if you're, you're letting your praise depend on what man gives you, you're looking for something that's fleeting. The person that praises you today is going to tell you how terrible you did tomorrow or next week. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, God declares, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's in God's timing, God's ability, and God's authority that judgments render. The judgment from God really is, as I said, the only one that, that does matter to us at the end of the day. All judgment rendered by man, both of others and self, doesn't last the eternal judgment, does it? Think about taking tests. Think about whether it be an SAT test or uh, maybe an exam for a professional like a plumbing license or electrical license or whatever the case may be for your discipline. You go out and you study and you study and you do what? You take practice tests. And we got plenty of college students in here. I know y'all have done this. You go out and you take that practice test. It's not the real test because you're scared to take that one. You don't think you're ready. But you keep taking that practice test. And then what do you do? You go back and it tells you what areas do you not fully understand yet. A friend of mine just took an exam. And he, he was confident. He had, really hadn't studied much, but he was confident. And he took the exam and they had graded it. And they come back and said, you need to study this area and this area. You're good on all the others. That's about the best we do when we judge ourselves, isn't it? When we go through the scriptures and we look at ourselves, we're trying to judge ourselves. But those tests are just kind of a practice test. We're, we're just trying to see where can I correct myself. But then you need input from the Lord to help guide you in direction, which he can do through his word. And that final day will come when we stand before him for the final judgment. But we do need to assess our own weaknesses. We do need to make corrections as the Lord gives us opportunity. We should be diligent in doing that. Paul is, I want to point out here, we're talking about judgment. Paul's discussing the judgment of a servant and their faithfulness to their master. This is a judgment of a person's service, okay? Service to God. I want to point that out because there are places in the Bible where the Bible lists sins. For us to sit and be able to look at another person and say that's a sin, that's clear sin, that is a place where we can judge others. I'm not saying go out and attack people, but that, that's a whole different teaching. Okay? 
So we, we can look at sin in a person's life and say that's sin. They need to deal with that. Um, there, are, there are plenty of places in the Bible for that. So I just want to be clear in this. In, in love, that person can be corrected. It can be pointed out to them and show them in the Scriptures. What Paul is talking about here specifically is the way the people in this church are judging his service to the God and how he's managing the church and how he's writing letters to them and rebuking them, quite honestly, here in these letters to Corinthians. He's having to do a lot of rebuke. It's, it's the way they've handled that situation. The parable of the talents from Matthew 25 gives us a good example of what Paul's talking about. This is Jesus himself. Starting in verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each one according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he had received the five talents. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But the one who had received one went and dug in the ground and laid his Lord's money, hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So these are stewards. It's the story of stewardship, right, with what they've been given. So now the, the master comes back. In verse 20, he says, So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So they're, they're getting this judgment, basically, right? It's being evaluated of how they've done. So then we get to verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hit your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. It's really often excuses here for not doing anything, not putting any effort into it is what he's offering. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's apply that to Paul for just a moment here. So we apply that to Paul. Is Paul being faithful in what the Lord's given him? How would you judge Paul in looking at that? Not, not in how he does it, but simply what he's done. As Paul went and planted churches. Paul was attacked, beaten, left for dead, shipwrecked, snake bitten, all these things, but did it slow him down? No. I don't think he ever found himself in a position to offer God only excuses. He said, God, I went where you sent me, and I shared what you gave me. I shared all that you showed me with others. He was able to say, I've done what you, I put effort into it. He wasn't interested in offering excuses. Why was Paul's ministry so blessed? Because he put effort into it. Because he was willing to put effort into it. God multiplied the people. Everywhere Paul went because Paul put effort. 
Not Paul that was able to do that, but God blessed his effort. He blessed his heart towards the ministry and his heart towards the people. So as, now as we move into verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one another against you. So what Paul's saying here is, you know, I'm not a slave, you know, specifically in the definition, the true definition of the term. I'm not a slave. I'm not a steward. I've not been given the duties over a household. I'm, I'm figuratively speaking here, but I'm doing this to try to help you understand that in essence the message of the gospel is the same. I've been given that responsibility of these mysteries of God, these teachings of God he's revealed to me, and I've been charged with taking them to you and sharing them with you. Paul's goal is to help the Christians to see and judge others basically based solely on the Word of God. He wants to get them to look just at the Word of God, not just world that they're encompassed in, but the Word of God. The same is true for us today, isn't it? We come to church, we, we hear messages, we get together in fellowship, we encourage one another through sharing stories, what God's done, what God's doing. We read God's Word and our devotions on a regular basis. Pray with Him. We, we listen to worship music and allow God to minister to us through worship. Then we step out into the world. We go to work or we go to school or we go to the grocery store. And what happens? We're instantly tested, aren't we? We read that message about loving others until we head to the grocery store and that person cuts you off at the red light. I mean, theirs had to have been red because you know yours was green. Maybe yellow, but probably green. You know, that person cuts in line or that person runs and gets the last of what you wanted off the shelf or, or they're rude to you or whatever the case may be. We start, we start getting tested right away in our faith, don't we? Do we love others? Do we, do we go out of our way? Do we take the shopping cart back for the, the older person that's having trouble walking? Do we offer to take their shopping cart back and put it in the crowd or even take it back in the store so they don't have to make that trip? You know, we have those opportunities. The, the apostles and, and pastors and ministers today should be evaluated on what's contained in the Word of God without added requirements or beyond what is written, as Paul says. So I figuratively transfer to myself and Apollos for your sakes that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. You know, how is Paul being judged by the Corinthians? It's not scriptural judgment. We're not to be divided amongst the cliques or who's doing the better preaching job, or who comes to visit more often, that type of thing, are we? What is written in the Word of God? Well, if we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, here Paul writes, And he himself, speaking of the Lord, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So that's what he gave them to be. That's the role he's called them to. What's the purpose? For equipping or in the King James Version, perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, well, what does that look like? Paul goes on in verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So I'll accept the gospel. I'll come together under the gospel, right? To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We begin to look like Christ. Christ wasn't divided. Christ didn't divide his believers. He worked together, loved on everyone. Continuing verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Paul talked about the Corinthians being babes in Christ, not able to handle meat but only milk. 
Uh, and that by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love. Truth in love. That's a whole other set of sermons, right? Speaking the truth in love, they may grow up in all things into him, Jesus, who is the head of the who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knitted together by whatever what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body, the edifying of itself in love. That's what Paul is, is saying. This is what we were called to do. This is his role, is to train the people, teach the people, equip them, perfect them to be saints in the ministry, working towards this common goal. But this wasn't what he was seeing in the Corinthian church. This wasn't what he was hearing about the Corinthian church specifically. Paul's stated purpose in his writing here that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one, one against the other. So as I mentioned before, when they start dividing themselves, it's, I'm with Paul. Paul shared the gospel. I got saved with Paul. Well, it was Apollos who shared the gospel with me, and he was here later, so I already knew a little bit. Or, or whatever they were at. You know, when, when he comes, more people come to see him. So he must be better. You see how we start judging things on ungodly principles outside of the scriptures in addition to the scriptures they're adding to? Do we do the same thing today in the body of Christ? We've got denominations. We just, even within denominations, you see churches dividing themselves. Decide ourselves based on areas of outreach. You know, we do this ministry, well, we do this ministry. Or we go here, we go further. Well, well, that person you saw walking the street, I shared with them the other day. How many times have you shared with them when you saw them? There's all these ways we start judging one another and separating ourselves as to who's the holier one, right? Did Jesus ever do that? We don't even see a hint of that with the Lord, do we? He said, just go out and share. Just go out and share. Now, knowing the disciples, they probably spent time debating on who got to go north, east, south, and west, right? We can just see Peter and John debating that. I'm going over here. No, no, no. You went there last time. I'm going there this time. I heard y'all had a lot of fruit over there. There must be a lot of fruit in that area. You can see that debate going on, right? That's not of our Lord, is it? That's not of the Lord. If anything, he could divide himself. He'd win every direction. He just said, go represent me. Take what I've taught you. Take it out to whoever you encounter. Anybody and everybody. Person cuts you off. That's nice. Smile at them. Keep going. They must have been in a hurry. Person needed that off the grocery store shelf. Eh, find something else. It's okay. If that made their day, let that make their day. That's the only joy they have in their life is that they got the last box of Fruity Pebbles then they need that joy, right? You have joy in me. Find our joy in the Lord. All these men that the, all of these men that the Corinthians are dividing themselves under are just servants to the great master. They're all servants of God responsible for distributing his mysteries. So Paul's saying, look at me, I'm just a servant. I'm just giving you what God wants me to give you. Apollos doing the same thing. Peter comes, he's going to do the same thing. He's going to send Timothy. We think Timothy's going to do the same thing. We're all teaching the same message of the gospel. The Corinthians are getting puffed up as they divide themselves according to the various servants of God. Look at verse 7. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So there's three questions here that Paul asked to serve a couple of purposes. The first one, who makes you differ from one another? If there's a difference between us, 
because of what God's done in us. There's really no reason for pride. Any differences between you and I? That's God. God made those differences. He gave you your abilities. He gave me mine. That was his decisions. We didn't, you know, pile them up in the middle of the room and go fight for them or anything. The, the gifts we have all came from God. What do you have that you did not receive? Well, if, if it came from God, there's no reason for pride in any one of us, is there? The same source, he gave it to us. We should take pride in that relationship, not in the gift that we have over another person's. So if everything you have, you, you received from somebody else, why do you boast as if you had not received it? If what you have spiritually is a gift from God, why do you glory in it as if it was your own accomplishment? What do we accomplish that God doesn't allow us to accomplish? How many times can we look back on something and go, wow, I can't believe I did that. That must be God. Yeah, I got through that ordeal or that situation, that trial, that tribulation. There's no reason to take pride in that. God got you through it. So when it comes time to who led a person to the Lord, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Paulos, that gospel message wasn't theirs. They just delivered it. That gospel came from the work of Christ on the cross. So what's the purpose in those questions? Well, for one thing, it's to remind us that our salvation comes from God. Once we start dividing ourselves among human reasons or human justifications among things like this, we start forgetting the real message of the cross, don't we? start forgetting our salvation came from the Lord. We need to keep our eyes focused on Him. Get Him back off the man. You know, there's tens of thousands of pastors and ministers around the globe every week sharing that same gospel message. All those believers, everybody that accepts the Lord, where'd they end up? In heaven with the same Lord. In fact, we're studying Revelation now. I want to spoil the ending here for you guys. Is this your first time through it? But you know, there's only one bride of Christ. There's only one bride of Christ. He's not going to pick and choose which group. All right, all those that Paul has shared the gospel with, you get to be the bride. It doesn't work that way. It's nowhere in Revelation. There's not division in, in the kingdom of heaven. There's one bride of Christ. Thank God he doesn't name any one of us individually. Because how much pride would that person have? Right? We're all the bride of Christ. That's how we're referred to in Revelation. The other person, the other purpose is to humble us. These questions point us back to the role of the minister and the steward. They're pointing us back to that being a role that God gave. Not the man, not the individual, but the task that they were given. By highlighting the fact that everything we have came from God, it reinforces the fact that we've been entrusted with valuables. Each one of us. We've accepted Christ as our Savior. We've been entrusted with very valuable information, valuable knowledge. How valuable is it? Well, it determines whether or not to go to heaven or hell. You consider that valuable. That knowledge we have, it's the knowledge that it takes to educate a person so that they can make the choice between heaven and hell. Some people in the world today truly don't understand they're going to hell. They think they do some work or something that they've made up in their own minds or heard from one of the religions around the world is going to get them into heaven. If I just go to church 50 times a year, I know there's two weeks, but I'll be on vacation then. If I can go to church 50 times a year, I can get into heaven. There are places I've heard that type of thing, spouse. I, I truly have. Is that true? Mm -mm. It's not the gospel. Nowhere in the gospel is that. The type of accounting done. It's all about the relationship with Christ. 
once we realize that we have these valuable gifts and we start recognizing that everything came from God, it keeps us humble. Because that, that simple knowledge is all that gets us into heaven too. If just my, my accepting Christ as my Savior is all that gets me into heaven, it's the same for any one of you. Where can I boast? I didn't do any special works. I haven't stood up here and taught X number of times to, to be able to get that ticket into heaven. No, it's just accepting the Lord as my Savior. We should keep each one of us humble and desire to share that with others. We should be eager to share that knowledge with others. And it is that simple. Paul talks about spectacles. Verse 8, you are already full, you are already rich, you have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both the angels and the men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak. Oh, you're strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. So it's interesting that here is a study this. A lot of pastors, including Pastor David Guzik, said that here in these verses, Paul is using sarcasm. Could agree with that. Pastor Chuck wrote that he was using satire. We, we talked about this before service a little bit. I wasn't sure the difference between those two. Do you know the difference between satire and sarcasm? So if you read all the various definitions, sarcasm has the idea of hurting another person. You're using words to kind of poke them a little bit, cause them a little sting. Sarcasm is meant to be funny. Well, I heard a few people chuckle as I read this, and you may have inside, but at the same time, there's a little sting of truth to it, isn't there? There's a little sting of truth to these things. How often do we find ourselves in this place where we begin thinking these things? I'm rich, and I look down upon other people because of something that I have or something I've received. How many times do we look at others and think, oh, I'm stronger than you for whatever reason we justify? And to kind of summarize all of this, we could spend a lot of time on this, but really to kind of summarize what Paul's saying here, you have to understand that there's truth to both sides depending on the perspective you take. If you take a worldly perspective here, look at these things. The Corinthians were full. They were rich. They reigned as kings. Again, I told you, this is a fabulous city, right? A large, wealthy city. These are people of stature. Known throughout the world. We're known around the world. But as Christians, we would look at that and go, yeah, but for all the wrong things. For all the wrong things. From a heavenly perspective, they were empty inside. And they were trying to fill that void with, with fleshly desires. From a heavenly perspective, they were morally lacking and boasted in their own sins. From a spiritual perspective, they were more interested in a relationship with the servants, the, the apostles, than they were the relationship with the master, with the Lord, with God. From a spiritual perspective, the Corinthians' wisdom, strength, and honor were all built on carnal pursuits of flesh and really had a limited time span, didn't they? They'll go away with their life for the end of this world, have no eternal value. And that's really what... I think Paul was doing a little bit of both. He, he, he cares about the Corinthians. He wants to teach them. He has his heart for them. But he also has to kind of jar them back into this reality. You, you've got to change your perspective here. You've got to give up this worldly perspective. You've got to look at your lives from a heavenly perspective of your new master, your new Lord, your, your eternal Savior. 
not the ruler of this world who gives you fleeting pleasure with a limited time. Because again, as we're going through Revelation, we're not quite there yet, but what happens in the end? No spoilers. In verse 12, skipping ahead a little bit, Paul says, and we labor, working with our own hands. Understand that, again, for these Corinthians, these are people who would not work with their own hands. That's what you bought slaves to do, right? Or hired people to do? You work with your own hands. Paul says, we labor. We work with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the obscuring of all things until now. I don't see Paul as the obscuring of all things, do you? But I have a different perspective than much of this world. I saw something written about Paul not long ago that Paul was just a, a power-hungry individual that liked to have authority over others. I don't see Paul that way. I see Paul as a person that had a burden to see people who were lost saved. Obviously, the person writing that had a worldly opinion, right? As I read through this, I'm going to share the thought that popped into my mind. It was early yesterday morning I was reading through this, and unfortunately I was sitting on my computer and I typed it quickly. As I read those words, I typed, The world begets worldly, God begets godly. I'll expand on it a little bit. The world produces worldly people, God produces godly people. We're worried about the world, we're focused on the world, and that pursuit, what are we going to look like? The world. We're focused on God if we're pursuing His Word. We're seeking to honor Him and represent Him. We'll begin to look like God, Christ, right? The world produces people that, as Paul says, revile. That's literally to heap abuse upon. You watch the news lately? Is that about the only thing we see is abuse being heaped upon others? He says to persecute, harass, or mistreat, or cause to flee. How many Christians for their faith have been beat down in the media and talked bad about trying to get them to walk away from their faith or just go along with the things of the world? Defame, talk evil about, tear down one another. It's what the world's doing. It's what we see daily in the world. God, God produces people that Paul says bless. We pray for one another. Even those that are doing all these terrible things, we pray for them or we should be. We endure. We sustain ourselves through situations. We stand fast in our beliefs. How do we stand fast in these things? How do we sustain ourselves? Where's the source of our strength? In the Lord. We turn back to God. That relationship again. It says we entreat. I didn't know that one. I really had to look that one up. Bring together. Build up one another. What's the last time you saw the world try to build people up? Where in the world do we see people encouraged, brought together in unity? We don't see that in the world. That's the Lord doing that in us as Christians. Because as Christians, we've repented. We've, we've turned away from the ways of the world. We've denied our own flesh, or we're doing the best we can at it, right? We turn to the ways of God. We don't look to the world for instruction. We look to the Word of God for instruction. We don't look to the world for our role models. 
We look to other Christian leaders, recognizing the frailty, recognizing that they're all men, but we look to Christ for our perfect image, right? And John 13, 35 says, By this we will all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In verse 14, Paul starts presenting himself as a father figure. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. See, Paul founded his church. Paul beget the church through the work of Christ, sharing the gospel message there in Corinth. Paul planted that church. He's the first one to go to Corinth and start sharing the gospel. What he's saying is, you have a special place in my heart. I'm having to write this letter of rebuke, but you have a special place in my heart. I care about you. I'm not saying these things to hurt you. The sarcasm, the satire however you want to say it, it's, it's not there because I want to hurt you, but it's because I've got to correct you. I have to do this. It's in your best interest that I do this. Think of a Christian father. The role of a Christian father. We have children to raise. We have to discipline them. We have to care for them the best that we can. But who do they really belong to? They're really a gift from God, aren't they? Most days we acknowledge that. There's a day from time to time we go... I don't know. Got, got a son and grandkids now, so been on my second cycle of that. Some days you look at them and go, mm, you're your mother's, not mine. And ladies, I want to recognize your role too, but Paul's talking about fatherly role here. So ladies have just as important a role in raising your children, maybe more. So I said that. We each have a role. And that's what Paul looks at these Corinthians as. You belong to God, but you're a special place in my heart. I have deep care for you. These are people he's set with, he's known, he's shared with one-on-one. These aren't just people he writes letters to every week and gets a check in the mail, right? He's not getting paid for doing that. These are people he cares about. He's fulfilling that role of steward from God that we read about. If we go back to what I read from Ephesians and we look at that, think about how good a job Paul's doing as he filling that role. He's doing all those things. He's building them up. Trying to, trying to help them become like Christ in every way to look like Jesus. To work together in unity. Maybe the greatest challenge he had. Unity. Bringing them together in unity. Wearsby describes the relationship here. A child may have many guardians and teachers, but he can have only one father. He has a special relationship to his father. It must not be preempted by anyone else. There had been no church in Corinth before Paul came, so that even the second generation believers in the church were the results of Paul's effective ministry. He sums that up well. Paul goes on in verse 18 and says, Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love and a spirit of gentle, gentleness? Parents, 
God gives a special gift to understand what the kids are doing without even seeing them doing it sometimes, right? Again, the moms have eyes in the back of their head. I don't know how they know, but they figure it out. My mom and wife are both here. I know there's things that I think I got away with, and I'm sure I did. I know with my son, there's things he got, he thinks he got away with it. Grandkids, no different. No different. The oldest one's 18 this week. There's things he thinks he got away with. We know. We may not know it all, but we know. There's a special place of a parent and the kids and that care for them. Paul says, those of you that are puffed up, you think you can just continue going? I'm not going to deal with it. I'm coming. I'm going to come see you again. I'm on my way back. Lord willing, I'm, I'm coming back. I've sent Timothy to work with you because I care so much. I mean, think about Put yourself in Paul's position. He's only got one that he called my like-minded. There's only one that truly thinks just like me. I've got to send him out. All these churches that Paul's been to and planted and taught at and knows. Where is he sending Timothy? It's Corinth. You've got to get him to Corinth. They need help. I care about him that much. I'm sending Timothy to you. I'm going to come back to He says, what do you want? Shall I come with a rod? Or in love? And a spirit of gentleness. In Titus 1.16, Paul wrote, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul wrote, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Wearsby wrote, it's not an easy thing to be a minister of Jesus Christ. As a steward, you must be faithful to our master, no matter what men may say to you or do to you. You will be treated as refuse by the people of the world. Your own spiritual children may break your heart and have to be disciplined. Discipline's important. Kim and I got a new eight-week-old King Shepherd puppy yesterday. So I was studying this morning, finishing up my notes. He's laying on the floor on the desk between my feet, chewing on the carpet and chewing on the base of the chair. I expect that from a new puppy, right? He's, he's a baby. He doesn't know any better. And I stopped him and gave him a toy to chew on every two to three minutes there for about 15 minutes. Finally, after that, I said, okay, this isn't working, and I had to give him a little rebuke on the snout. Not, not enough to hurt him, just to get his attention, and it worked. He sat up and looked at me. What just happened? That rod of rebuke, right? But then he walked over, and he started rubbing the side of his head up against my hand, just like where I was petting him earlier in the morning. I'm like, Dad... I like the petting better. I like the love better than I do the rebuke. And then he curled up in the corner and went to sleep. I'm sure we'll have to go through that again. I don't know he's going to learn in one try. But that discipline is important. It's important for us as children of God to be rebuked, to be taught, to learn. The faster we learn it, the easier it is on us, right? The less discipline we have to take. So Stephanie comes back up to close us out in worship. There are those that care for you. There are those that have been put in that position. Leadership. That care about you. That sacrifice for you. Out of a place of love, but also out of a responsibility to God who's put us in various positions. You may be in those positions within other ministries to care for those under you. 
If you're an usher or greeter in this ministry, you know I've talked to you about loving every person that comes through the door. That's what you're called to do. Care for those others as they come through. It's a burden you have. Parents who are given that role and responsibility in various places. Lord, may you give us the clarity of mind, Lord, to see where we can do better as leaders, Lord, to lead those that you've placed under us. And Father, as your children, may we receive the instruction that you provide to us through those that you place put in places to lead and guide within your church, Lord. Speak to us and give us clarity, Lord. Help us to hear your message through their words. Lord, as we seek to draw closer to you. Lord, may you give us the strength to recognize those worldly things around us that seem so enticing, that seem to carry so much joy. But Lord, they only serve as traps for the ruler of this world to ensnare us, Lord, to distract us from the work that you've called us to to drag us into dark places that we don't want to be, Lord, that you don't desire for us to be. May we cling, Lord, to the truths of your gospel, Lord. May we proclaim those to those around us and demonstrate them through our actions and works on a daily basis, Lord. May you use our lives to represent Christ to every person that we encounter, Lord, through word and through deed. We pray these things in the name of Christ.